Today's podcast is a discussion with Andrew Osentoski. I met Andrew when we were going through Leadership Jefferson together a few years ago. Uh, after going through Leadership Jefferson, I, I realized I wanted to do some sort of postgraduate community give back, and I came up with the idea of this podcast. Andrew was also considering doing a podcast back then, and he actually lent me all of his equipment to produce this um, this content. So. Andrew is an expert when it comes to droned or unmanned aerial devices or craft. I'm not really sure what the terminology is, but we definitely break it down in this conversation. Let's listen to what Andrew has to say about drones. Have you heard of Bracken's painting? I started Bracken's painting back in 2011. We do both residential and commercial painting. We have contractors' licenses in West Virginia and Virginia, and we carry all the necessary insurances, like workers' comp, general liability. Uh, we operate a small staff that focuses on meeting the homeowner's needs and project manager's timeline expectations. Uh, we pri- you try to have exceptional attention to detail. If you're interested in doing any sort of commercial or residential painting, please contact Bracken's Painting. More information can be found at www. BrackensPainting.com. Andrew, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Really quick, I want to do a little bit of background on how Andrew and I know each other and where we met. And we're going to talk about drones and the drone industry quite a bit in this podcast. But uh, Andrew and I went through a program in Jefferson County called Leadership Jefferson. And that was a program that lasted eight or nine months where we kind of traveled around. Once, once, once a month, we traveled around the uh, county and we'd learn about agriculture or industry or economic development, local government, federal government, education, social services, maybe one or two other items. But it was a really cool class because there's about 24 people in it. Somewhere in that Sounds range. Sounds about right. Yeah, about 22, 25, 26 people. Um, just from all walks of life in the county. But... Me being a business owner and Andrew working in government contracting and stuff like that, we would always end up getting beers afterwards or whatever and hanging out socially. Um, As that program wrapped up, I came up with an idea called Good Company. And Good Company was about small business owners in the county getting together and sharing information with each other. Uh, That information would be what transpired at city council meetings, what happened, um, what's happening in the news, what companies are coming to town, how can we be in front of the momentum of the economy, specifically in the places that we make run our business. At the time, Andrew and his buddy were planning on putting together a podcast, um, and Andrew said, it'd be cool if I came on as like a small business content provider, like occasionally, like maybe, maybe once a month, once every two months, stuff like that. And um, his ended up not really being put together, and um, Andrew's a huge supporter of this podcast because he literally gave me all of his equipment that he was going to use for me to use because I was developing a bunch of content and didn't have equipment yet. So, Andrew, I really appreciate your support because really, without you and your encouragement, I wouldn't have been able to move forward with this hobby. No, it's great. I'm glad you were picking up and running with him. If anybody in this county, it should be you. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that, man. And then, oh, it's that in the beard. I think that that that's that's what 
it sets you apart from everybody else. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's all part of the branding. There you go. All part of the branding. And Jenny, Jenny loves the beard, so got to keep the beard. I always threaten <laughs> to cut it back to the mustache, how it was about five years ago, and she says that's a divorceable offense. So <laughs> I'll keep the beard. Okay. Nice, man. So, Andrew, tell, um, tell the people listening about who you are. Who I am. So I am a... Um, transplant to West Virginia. Uh, my wife and I, and uh, at the time three kids, but now we have four, uh, moved here back in 2015 for a job transfer. And um, originally I was working for Lockheed Martin down in Ashburn in some uh, air traffic work. And there's there's a handful of people in the area that actually uh, work, still work there. They were the ones that encouraged and uh, kind of uh, yeah encouraged us to look at the Panhandle as a place to live and settle down, and that's what we did. Um, Really enjoyed the area when we first got here, um, still do to this day, and, um, you know, it's a great place to raise a family and all that, um, but since then, you know, we've we've made some iterations uh, or made some advancements, so I went from, I think now I'm on my third job um, between working for Lockheed to work for a small government contractor down in uh, Falls Church, so I commuted in. Uh, to DC, all the way to Falls Church. No, I commuted well that one one day a week, and then three days a week I was downtown DC, uh, FA headquarters, right across the street from Air and Space Museum. So like I was in the heart of DC. Wow. <clears throat> so did you drive uh, or train? Uh, or? I mark train. So I'm a big kind of proponent of the mark train. I actually sit on uh, or sat on rather one of the funding committees up to the uh, most recent uh, funding announcement. So that's really good and encouraging to hear that that service is going to continue. Um, and then, but about a year ago, I ended up getting picked up by a small startup that I've known for some time. But um, they called me up one day when they were about to get some investment cash and said, "Hey, we'd like to bring you on board. Would you like to work from home and travel the world?" And I said, "Yes, that sounds great." So uh, I started almost a year ago, and on day number seven with the company, I was on a plane over to Europe, and um, I've been all over the place over the last year, and it's been uh, a wild and fun ride. What's the name of that company? Robotics Guys. What do you do for them? I mean, what do they do? I guess. Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> Robotics Guys is a is a startup uh, that focuses on um, unmanned aircraft, or more commonly known, drone maintenance. Um, the concept was born out of the idea that drones are going to mature to a point where they would need uh, maintenance on the same or similar level as manned aircraft do. Right? Um, these things are going to graduate from somebody holding a remote control and watching this thing in the sky while they flew it to uh, these operating autonomously in the airspace on their own, uh, up to and including carrying people uh, in something that's called urban air mobility. Um, and that's a very real concept and things that that's the industry is marching towards. So we, my, my CEO, Brad Hayden, kind of had this forward-looking thought coming out of the maintenance world going, I probably want to get ahead of this. So that's what he did. He went around, um, created a global network of repair stations, and um, global network. Global network. So I have uh, just under 200 repair stations in 46 countries. I think is the last count that we can uh, work on aircraft of unmanned aircraft of uh, varying size, complexity, and cost. I want to circle back around to that maybe at the end of the podcast because that yeah. sounds like very advanced. Um, content that I want to I want to break the basics down first yeah yeah and this is called the break it down for Bracken's podcast so let's really just 
Let's keep it simple at first. Got it. Anything else about your background you want to let us know about? Uh, just for those that are, that uh, you know, my experience in the drone world isn't just with this company. In my previous job as a contractor, I um, worked on the integration of drones into the, into our national airspace system. Now, that sounds like a complicated term, sure. It really just is I helped uh, take the rules as they were written and develop tools and technological solutions so that uh, people out in the country can operate drones safely and efficiently. Um, so there's a, I, I have a pretty wide breadth of knowledge when it comes to this stuff, um, being part of the teams that were in the rooms at the FAA headquarters working on the integration of this stuff. So I, I have some insight and some, some uh, perspective that uh, most people, uh, you know, very few are going to have. So. Well, you know, like, I think the general knowledge of drones hmm. is the most basic. It's the one that we buy for our kids or yeah. our nephews, and it's a uh, $40 quadcopter that yeah. runs off of a a very basic remote control, left, right, up, down, I think. Yeah. And maybe some triggers or whatever that make it go forward or backwards. I really I haven't even played with one in years. Um, but there's even the smaller ones, and they kind of grew out of those little helicopters you could buy like yeah, they eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And they were sm the small ones, you know, the ones that broke on the third crash. <laughs> um, but regulation came down years ago that to fly even the the children's version, you had to, like, register it? Is that what it was? Yeah. So there, in 2015, um, they came out with a registration requirement that anything over, it was 0.55 pounds, so it ended up being about 8 ounces, um, had to be registered. And, and there was a very intentional reason for that. And, and it was primarily, it was, it was a training purpose. So it was $5 to register. You, it gave you this alphanumeric code. And kind of what it did is it gave the FAA the ability to reach back to the registrant and to provide training and education as needed. That was the initial idea. There were some challenges in court to that. There were some privacy concerns because you got, you know, kids who are as young as 13 whose information may have been on the on government websites, so they had okay. to strip a lot. So there was a lot of controversy around it. And in fact, it, it actually got overturned at one point uh, because it, it didn't follow correct protocol. And then Congress came back and reinstituted it. But um, that was kind of like the first regulatory step or the first regulatory action to do anything with drones on a residential or kind of a recreational level. What year was that again? 2015. End of 15. So at the end of 15, if it was regulation then, that means they were probably working on it in 13. Uh, not that one. Okay. That one, that was kind of a snap decision based on um, – some other things that were going on both within the FAA but also on the Capitol Hill. And that was kind of really just brought forth fairly quickly. Now, in the background during this time was something called the small UAS rule, small unmanned aircraft system rule, uh, that ended up being um, enacted into law uh, in June of 2016. So that was definitely at this time going on in the background there was uh, authoring a notice of proposed rule that went out in February 16 uh, and then the final rule came out in that June that is now the operational rules so it's not just registration this is where the pilot license comes in well yeah we're not we're not even there yet Got it. so I guess what I'm saying is what I've learned by by reaching out and, and learning from people specifically how laws are made how regulations are set it takes years to get something moved forward. 
Well, if, if we if we want to go further back, there was actually a special exemption that was offered as early as like I think it was 2012. It was a public law, something that came out of Congress, and it was buried inside the FAA Authorization Act. The, the FAA has to get authorized so many after so many intervals of months or years or whatever. So there was a special exemption there. That was really the big kickoff. And but then, yeah, you're right. From 2012 to 2016, or you, excuse me, the end of 15, when the registration rule came out, and then other things like yeah, there's there it, it was multiple multiple years to get this stuff out. Right. So the, I guess the point that I'm getting at is in 2012. You saw the very first probably one-pound drones being sold at Christmas time, right? Yeah. Like they're, they, got, they were getting more advanced. I'd and, argue it was probably about another year after that. Okay. I think it was more like 13. Right. So I'm saying like in that time yeah. frame, that's when – and they were really probably really expensive, like just ridiculous. And yeah. like a upset, exceptional toy to buy for somebody or for someone to own. But I guess what I'm saying is as they begin to the, – develop the regulations in 12 or 13 by 14 you have these other brands coming out with significantly more advanced and although still expensive by 16 17 the ones that were 1200 bucks are now 300 bucks yeah right yeah but the acceleration of the technology is well ahead of the the level of regulation right beyond belief Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just talking from a hobbyist. Yeah. Not even some, like I know some of these drones, I can fly it around the parking lot of, a, of an abandoned shopping mall pretty mm. easily, right? Yeah. But then there's also drones that you can fly on flight plans that are like five miles long, mm. traveling any, any, anywhere you want them to go. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying they have these capabilities. Yeah. And then I'm sure you'll explain more capabilities that they have. But so how, how does the... And this might not be your topic, but how does the legislation or the regulation keep up with the, the level of uh, technology available to the regular consumer? It doesn't. And flat out, the answer is it doesn't. Okay. Um, what I will say, and I'll give the FAA some credit and sure I'm biased because I was in the room and I in the walls and I was doing some of this work. They they are listening to industry because industry is in there pounding on the fist pounding the desk going. More, 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 faster, 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 okay? Um, and the FAA is listening. They are putting uh, resources into things, and I was a result of one of these things where, you know, there was this, um, in, in, in the small UAS rule, there's airspace access, and there's requirements around getting into certain airspaces, specifically around airports. And the, air, the FAA went and said, okay, we're going to develop a, a technological solution. It's really a software solution. We'll, we, the government, We'll build the back-end data infrastructure and the, and the data housing. You industry, in a public-private partnership, develop the front end. You develop the, the, the user interface. And here's a, here's a document that says here's all the rules you got to follow, right? And if you want to plug into our system, we're, we're not going to pay you to do this, and you're not going to pay us to do this. This is a, this is a partnership. You meet all these rules, you can plug in, and now you can offer this real-time service to your, uh, your, your users, your, your customers. So if we think of how long it takes regulations to get into place, but more specifically, how long does it take any federal agency to, to procure a brand-new system, a new technological solution, can cost upwards of $20 million just for the feasibility studies, and it could be a decade 
especially with the FAA because everything's safety sensitive. But what I'm getting at is they turned this thing around in two years and they were able to offer the service <clears> to <throat> operators. Uh, and and the, the impact was a at the time or right before this solution went available, if you wanted to get, uh, say we got Martinsburg Airport, right? And that's, that's a controlled, uh, there's controlled airspace there down to the surface. And if you wanted to fly inside that controlled airspace, it would take upwards of 114 days to get the approval back from the FAA. You would go online, submit a paper form or a web form, take almost three months to get it back. With this technological solution, and, and the, the uh, acronym comes out to LANCE, and it, you can get an airspace authorization in seven seconds. Why am I flying a drone over Martinsburg Airport? Not, or not over, near. Oh, okay. Near, because when we look at traditional airports and you got airplanes that take off, they need some space and some distance to climb out after they take off, right? Sure, okay. So there's a volume or a cylinder of controlled airspace around an airport to give air traffic control the ability to kind of control and see what's in there so that those planes can safely climb out. So Martins, Martinsburg is a, is a good example because it's kind of a simple, generally a one runway airport and you see all the C-17s in and out. When we get to say a more complicated airport such as Dallas-Fort Worth, that ring is a little bit bigger and then there's a couple shells that stand out off to the side so that it gives safe and controlled airspace for, for those operations. How do you know if you're in one of those zones? Well, uh, you either through your, if you're taking a remote pilot or you're going after your remote pilot certificate, you took a test, which is going to test your knowledge on that, uh, as well as this Lance solution would depict those areas and show those to you. So there's, there's solutions out there. My 12 year old nephew yeah. is not following these solutions. Should be. Yeah. Or, or the parents should be, should know, and this is where a little bit of controversy would come in, but the... At the most basic sense, anything over eight ounces or 0.55 pounds, that is an aircraft. Oh. The U United States federal government considers that to be an aircraft. No different than a Boeing 737. Okay. So if you're going to operate an aircraft in the airspace system, you then cannot claim ignorance against the regulations, right? You're supposed to know about these things. Now, the, I get the argument. This seems really heavy when it is. a lot of times you're looking at a toy. Exactly. And that's what I was about to say. Yeah. A lot of folks look at these things as toys. And, and truthfully, they, they pretty much are. Um, and there's some things coming down the road that will help further kind of delineate what those things are and, and separate good from bad, you know, well-informed and not well-informed and all that. And, and um, you know, really it's more about just – you know, it could be as simple as this, where it's me talking to you on a podcast about these things to help people understand this subject better so that they can go out and inform themselves. That's yeah, the I'm just imagining if if me and my kids are going to visit grandma and they live inside that zone right yeah. next to the airport, which there are plenty of neighborhoods right over there, yeah. um, and they take the drone out of the car because yep. we're just visiting and they start flying it around. Yep. It's it's um, It seems... It, it almost reminds me of how dangerous it was to download music illegally back in yeah. the Napster days. Yeah. You know, like, oh, they're going to come find me and, yeah. and find me and, and that kind of thing. Now, now, I mean, let's walk that scenario through a little bit further. Sure. If you then created a 99 times out of 100 or, or, or a better rate than that, nothing's going to happen. Everybody's fine. Okay. Because most likely that that drone that you're operating in the backyard is probably below the treetops. If if a, if a plane is encountering a drone at that level, they got bigger problems. True, right? Mm -hmm. Totally true. Um, however, 
there is, if the operator or the drone itself created a hazard to any aircraft or the airspace system or anything like in that manner, and it were to be caught or reported, that's like a $20,000 fine minimum by the FAA. They have that authority in law to do that. And, and what I find interesting, especially in this case, when dealing with drones, is how many laws are out there on the federal books that we don't know about that we could get pinged for, you know? And, and this is sure. a great example. Yeah, that's, that's amazing because yeah. the, um, you're right, it should, the drone should be below. Uh, let's go to the next step then. Um, that drone you brought to my house and yeah. we demoed it, what was that drone called? That was a DJI uh, Phantom 3. So it's an older one, I bought that. Yeah, yeah that was years ago. Yeah. Sorry. So what does that run retail approximately? Do you remember? When I bought it, I think it was about, I paid like eight fifty, nine hundred bucks for it. Okay, let's say it's nine hundred dollars. How much do you think it's worth now, or would re a similar drone would retail for now? Ooh, those two different questions. If I tried to sell that same one, like if I tried to secondhand sell it, I may get one hundred twenty bucks for it. What if it was um, something comparable at Best Buy or something like that? Brand new. I mean, yeah, yeah you probably if if it was that with that, those capabilities, it right. would still probably be. 250 range really but now if we look at what you could buy for 900 no 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 no, no. we're not there yet I'm, oh, okay. I'm just saying i'm making i guess an analogy you have the licenses yeah so when you were showing me how it works like you you're allowed to do that mm -hmm. but that thing went high yeah those things fly really high but that was limited i mean so the law says that you can't go any higher than 400 feet okay was well, still 400 feet is well above the treetops yeah but that the the what i was showing you was software limited to 400 feet it stopped me at 400. now I, there's an override in there oh i see that i could have done and it'd give me a bunch of warnings and yelled at me but i still could have done it and i could have taken that thing up to like four thousand feet right okay again that's that's getting another rabbit hole <laughs> i guess what i'm saying is the one my nephews might be using yeah would climb to 80 feet probably yeah Again, still probably below treetops and all that. Back in those days, a $900 drone, which is now currently a $250 drone, you can fly to 400 feet anywhere you want to, whether you're right or wrong. Yeah. So the average person with 250 bucks could fly a drone that high. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy to me, right? Hmm. Now, that's not even like the commercial thing. All you got to have is that registered, not a pilot. Correct. Whoa. Okay. Right, because we can go down when you're ready. We can go down the pilot track. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's coming up in a few okay. seconds okay. here. I'm, I'm just I'm just building this scenario in my head that I can go buy that DGI on sale, super clearance because it's four years old for two hundred fifty bucks, most likely, and mm -hmm. I can have an aircraft by definition flying at four hundred feet around the area, no matter what the area is. Yep, without much regulation at all. Correct. Ah, oh, jeez, great. Now. If I want to fly, um, no, let's let's go back to the other thing first. What do you get now for nine hundred bucks? You get some pretty amazing tech. Um, basically, you get twice the capabilities that you saw when we were flying mine for half the size. I mean, so the software doesn't allow it to go higher because it's not approved to go higher. Yeah, there's and and even some some of the soft like so in the case of DJI, they've gotten really good with their app. Where uh, in the case of Martinsburg, mm -hmm. it knows that that's controlled airspace and will actually give you warnings. Like, can you take off here? 
and it, oh. it'll start pinging you, and more and more are doing that. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. That's a very good, um, some very good oversight there. Okay, so double the capabilities. You mean double the distance, double the battery life, that kind of thing? Double the speed, the capability, and the clarity of the of the camera that's on board, the storage, the speed, sure. Yeah, bro, we haven't even gotten to that part yet. I got all these questions. <laughs> um, okay, so before we go down the capabilities, let's talk about, because the most common ones are just a registered drone that is a hobbyist. Yeah. Then if I want to fly a drone with a camera over my 5K or over even, I don't know, a, a cornhole tournament that's happening, hmm. you have to have some sort of special permitting, correct? Or licensing. Licensing. And, and it comes down to this question of, you know, the licensing, the license, the remote pilot certificate is actually its technical term, um, is, or it allows you to operate uh, in, in, in certain commercial manners, right? So, meaning you can, you can receive goods and services, including money, um, to perform a certain task. Uh, it's not limited to money, and that's a common misconception that, well, I'm not charging somebody for it, so therefore I don't need a license. That is not true. Okay. Uh, it is some sort of, if you're doing a task that furthers a business or you're receiving goods or information from, or goods or services from, in exchange for that, then that is considered a commercial operation. So in this case, let's if you want to fly over your 5K, it is something that you're doing for your business, the furtherance of your business, your brand, your whatever, one would consider that a commercial operation, regardless if it's your company doing it for your own personal or your own personal business interests. Right. It would still be considered a commercial operation. So I would need a remote pilot certificate for that. Correct. How difficult is that to get? It's not at all. So um, you basically get a book off of Amazon for 25 bucks. You study the daylights out of it, and then you go take a FAA written examination at a testing center for 159 I think, is the cost. How long is that good for? Uh, it's good for two years. There is a After two years, you're supposed to go take a new test, but the most recent uh, authorization out of the FAA now says that they got to come up with some sort of a um, recurrent training, so you don't have to go take another test. You can just do some training and be done. That's okay. still in development, though. So then I can be a, um, I'll have my remote pilot certificate, so now I could be paid to fly a video camera over a birthday party mm -hmm. or a soccer game or mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. Okay. Now, there's a lot of rules that go along with that. Okay. But you know, we can we can talk about that whenever you're ready. But I'm ready right now. Okay. And we're on the top. Let's let's do that part. Yeah. So when you when you go for your remote pilot certificate, you're under you're falling under what's called part one oh seven in the um, Code of Federal Regulations for the FAA. So it's Title Fourteen, Part One O Seven. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of operating rules, uh, prohibitions and limitations. And in going through the test, you're going to learn about airspace, you're going to learn about weather, you're going to learn about uh, things common to aviation, but then you're also going to learn about the regulations. And one of them that's really important to know, and it's something that I see offended quite a bit around our area with people that put up uh, stuff on social media, is you're not supposed to be flying over people. There is a specific prohibition to flying over human beings. This is flabbergasting to me, because that's yeah. just exactly what I wanted to do. Right. Now... There's some nuance in there, and okay. there's ways to comply with the law by the letter of the law um, and still be safe. And it all comes down to, you know, performing, um, you know, a, a risk mitigation identification type session before. Like, so if you're talking about a soccer game, if you stand off to the side with your drone, 
and that the only possibility of, or if that drone to fall out of the sky, it would fall straight down. You know, say you run out of battery, there's a catastrophic failure, whatever. It falls straight down and nobody's going to get hit. Technically, you're not flying over people. That makes sense to me. Okay. So, I mean, it's all about making sure people on the ground and property on the ground is safe. Okay. The last thing we want to do is have one of these things hitting some kid in the head. Uh, because those blades, blades do spin fast, and they are strong, and they will slice somebody's temple open pretty quick. What if I want to fly over people? So you can apply for a waiver. So you can ask the FAA saying, I have done, here's how I'm going to equip my drone. Here's how I'm going to operate my drone. Here's a scenario in which I'm going to do this. I am providing an equitable or greater level of safety than what is granted by just flat out prohibiting the rule right so you're saying okay i'm going to put a i'm going to put a parachute on it and everybody's going to wear hard hats and i'm going to do this and i'm going to do that and everybody knows that a drone's going to be in this area and they all know that there's a possibility and they're all cool with it like if you go through all these different things and say to the faa i'm going to ensure that it doesn't fall in the sky and in the very off chance that it does that everybody's okay then they'll this is go, terrible they'll go back and look and they'll say all right, that makes sense, or no, that doesn't make sense, or maybe we need some more clarification on it, whatever. And there's a back and forth. You can get a waiver. That's today. There's a notice of proposed rulemaking. Here comes these regulation making. Right. That's sitting in the uh, chamber right now uh, for operations over people, and that's going to fall back on manufacturers. What chamber? Uh, just like like it's sitting and waiting. Okay. It's just sitting. It's uh, federally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With the FAA, that manufacturers would then make drones and certify drones to a standard that if it were to fail it would not exceed a certain impact a force impact on a human if it were to hit them on the ground and then those would be available to fly over people on a regular basis without a waiver if you take some special training and you fly that certified drone and there's going to be like one or two classifications okay that is the coolest part of a drone and drone video, is it flying over people and events oh, and yeah. showing how awesome things are from the sky. I don't think I ever showed you my uh, video over the Great Lakes with my uh, one of my wife's cousins, mm -hmm. him on a jet ski, and we uh, he's coming, it's on Lake Huron, he's coming at the drone on a jet ski, and I literally give him a buzz cut, taking wow. a video of it, and it was, oh, it was one of the coolest shots ever. Super illegal. But super cool. Like <laughs> but that's, super cool. That's the whole point of doing this, is yeah. that it's... Man, I want to catch that aerial footage, and everybody wants to see it. Yeah. Everybody knows they're part of, a, of an event, and they want to see that abstract camera angle that no one's ever going to get because it's in the sky. Yeah. It would probably be easier to get a helicopter to fly over an event. Yeah, because, and here's the important point, because the helicopter is built to what's called a type certification and they have what's called airworthiness standards that they have to maintain. So there's safe, there's multiple, multiple, multiple layers of safety assurance that comes along with that helicopter, the helicopter pilot, the operational certificate, that as best as it can, nothing's perfect, no system is perfect, but as close to perfect as it can get, will not fall out of the sky and kill somebody. That level of safety assurance and build-in and triggers and risk mitigators is just not there in the drone industry because it's only really been around in its current form for about four years. Yeah, I got it. Now, all that's coming. A lot of this is coming, and that's happening today, and that's how my company gets into this, some of this stuff. Oh, 
Next question. Yeah. Can I hire a drone company to video it for me? Yeah. And they know how to do all these things. Well, presumably. But if if they're worth their weight in salt, and you say, I want to fly that, you know, can you get this shot over people? Either they're going to say one or two things. No, I can't because it's prohibited in the rule, but we can do something different. Or, hey, I got a waiver. Yeah, we could do some things, but we're going to take some pre-coordination. If they flat out say, yeah, we can do that, that's red flag city all over the place because they're not operating according to the regs. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I guess that uh, takes me down to the next topic I want to talk about. So we just covered hobbies and hobbyists and rookies that want to go out and drop 500 bucks on a drone to go fly the camera over their event, which I've now been told is just not worth the effort because <laughs> I'm not trying to fill out waivers or get my remote pilot certificate, even though it'd be cool, but I don't have time for that personally. Yeah. Um, commercial. What are some examples of commercial drone companies Possibly in West Virginia or even in Jefferson County. Can you rattle off any of those and what they do? Uh, I, not really. Um, and it's it's not for. It really, it's it's. I, I got a much more global scale, and you know, on my mind and the work uh -huh. that I do. So I'm not really paying attention a lot outside of maybe just a surface interest in what's going around the Panhandle. I do see some folks that are flying around and putting stuff up on social media or there's some cool marketing videos. I think like Bavarian Inn has somebody coming and doing some stuff for them and it's really cool shots. Right. The one over the Potomac with the snowfall was brilliant. But that's legit because not over people. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as far as companies in the state, there's one that I work with out of Charleston that we're having a... We, there's been some press releases in the news in the last couple of months that... Uh, um, you know, we're working with them to advance uh, some certain manufacturers that are in, trying to enter into the country. Um, they're foreign manufacturers, mainly out of Europe. And uh, this company's called Metatron. Good group of guys down there in Charleston. Um, actually, I'll be going down there in a couple of weeks to visit with them. But really, that's like one of the only ones I know of. I mean, the, the drone industry in West Virginia is, is, as far as I know, it is pretty light if, if there's many companies at all. Um, outside, of, outside of what I would consider more of the consumer slash prosumer level which is photographers realtors things of that nature if we want to go a level up i don't know of many well, let's that... go there first so yeah you're right i didn't even think about that realtors do pull this off they pull these really cool aerial shots yeah there's a couple around here doing a whole bunch of stuff in theory they have a remote pilot certificate uh in theory in theory yes yeah. okay i'm just saying like to do it legit that's what they would have i'm not, I'm not calling anybody out no, 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 if they have it, but i'm just saying like in theory their operator would probably have one of those. Um, the I, I remember I, I think I was at Rotary or at a chamber event, and I met somebody who had a drone company that would survey large crops. Mm -hmm. They would kind of fly over the crop and be able to identify from the air, I guess, diseased areas or yeah. failing sections of crop. I think that was in Jefferson County. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. I think it's. Uh... Uh, agronomy, ag agronomy or something like that. I can't remember, I can never say their name right. But right, there were guys a, out of Martinsburg Airport that were doing that. Right. And I think one of them was a plane. Like So a drone doesn't always have to be a quadcopter. No. It can be It could be a plane too. Yeah, and I think that's the, the more correct term to use is unmanned aircraft. Okay. okay. So... And that when you when you frame it like that, yeah, it can be anything. I mean, there's there's I got manufacturers I work with today that have fixed wing like airplane, traditional airplane, 
uh, single rotor, which would look like a helicopter, right. and then you got multi-rotor, which is the quadcopters, or in some cases, I got ones with like eight or nine, or not eight or ten motors on it. Right. So what would be some examples, though, of a business that would, a drone-specific business, like how, what kind of, what kind of industry opportunities are there for drones, do you think? I, I think there's plenty. Um, at the at the base level, uh, most of the industry currently is built off of imaging, be it video image, like actual like pictures, right. color pictures, straight video, uh, through special sensors and imaging, uh, IR, LIDAR, um, videography, cinematography, all these things. They all come back to a baseline and they're just capturing imagery. Now, it's what... They're really good at capturing images. It's what you do with the images after the fact. Is really where the bread and butter of an industry really could be, right? It's what you do with the data. So in the case of the guys flying over the fields, you could you could take a 16-year-old with that same camera, put them out in that same field, and they're going to collect the same data. It's the analysis of the data after the fact that's really the key. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So it's just a tool to collect data. Then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's. But it's a but it's a cheap and cost effective way to do it because if you wanted to hire a helicopter to do something like this, you know, it costs like a thousand bucks an hour to fly a helicopter. Right. So that's a bit cost prohibitive when you can throw a drone out there for. I mean, you bought the thing for a thousand dollars. So my my mind is really spinning now. I'm starting to think of a lot of different opportunities that could be used for um, used with drones. But you're right. The imagery is the primary thing so far. It seems like. Yeah. No. Um, Commercially, though, you know, always, there's always this hype about um, Amazon delivering drones or packages with drones. Yeah. I think it's pretty obvious what it is, but I don't know if anybody's thinking about where does it take off from? How does it hook up to the package? How does it know where to fly? Does it fly to your house? Does it fly to a typical zone? Is it yeah. a locker it drops it in? Like, do you know anything about that? Oh, my Lord. More than you know. <laughs> let's, let's do it, man. Break it down. Let's do this. Tell it's, me about how Amazon might be doing it. Well, let's not talk about Amazon. Okay. Let's talk about UPS. Okay, sure. And the reason I'm, I'm going to talk about these guys is just shameless plug here. Just last week. Um, no, not last week. It was this week. Yeah, it's already been that long a week. Uh, on Tuesday, we announced our formal partnership with the manufacturer of the drone that UPS is using. Oh, cool. So I was out in California all last week working on side-by-side -side with this manufacturer called Matternet uh, to learn how to repair and to alter their vehicles in a safe manner in accordance with... Uh, how big are their vehicles? Uh, about the size of this table. Okay. So about six feet wide? Five yeah, feet wide? Yeah, man. Five, five on a good day. Uh, when, you many, when you factor in the propeller... How many mo motors? Four. Four. It's a quadcopter. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a more, you have to be a bigger propellers, bigger motors to pick up bigger weight. Yeah, but they're only picking up so many pounds. I think they're they're limited to I think it's like five pounds or something like that. I couldn't tell you the specifics, but this is just what do I'm you, thinking. Do you need that much power to pick up five pounds, or is that Not overkill? Really. That's that's overkill. I mean, they got a monster battery in it, but cool. uh, uh, okay. yeah, I mean, it's they they got a look. Their plat their platform is extremely mature, and a lot of the questions that you were just asking, they're already figuring it out, or they already have solutions for. How where do how do the packages get affixed? How does they get dropped off? Where do they take off and land from? So I think the key, and this is this is a question, or those set of questions are indicative of everybody, right? And they're all in various stages of maturity and development. What's important to know at the moment is that all these deliveries currently are being done at what's called a integration pilot 
program site. So there's 10 of them across the country, at least there were 10, I think it's down to nine now, where they are working in conjunction with the FAA at these very specific test sites to perform these operations more in the research and development uh, context so they can gather data, figure out what works, what doesn't work, prove safety cases, and but and that's all on the FAA side. On the company side is to develop their concepts, to make things faster, to figure out what's working and what's not working. So the three big ones right now are Amazon, Google, and UPS. Okay, so it's amazing to me because you can't fly the drones to do this study to determine what's efficient for your company and what's not without working hand-to-hand -hand with the FAA, mm -hmm. who's like, meh, maybe we should try this, maybe we shouldn't try this, maybe that's too much, maybe it's not, you know. But I think this goes back to what we were saying earlier, where the technology is moving at such a blazing fast pace that, not maliciously, I think well-intentioned, the, 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 these companies are working with the FAA to help them figure these things out so the industry can advance further and quicker. I got it. Yeah. Okay, that, that, that's... That totally makes sense. And the FAA has to jump through hoops anyways just to get the speed to have a committee or a team who's able to assess yeah, this. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So that, that's great that the FAA is working to try to meet the needs of the industry. And then the industry is like, you're not fast enough. Let's help you yeah. with this even. Yep. That's really good. All right. So like in my mind, if I was a UPS and I, I know like – and I can't use EPS as an example. I have to use the Amazon, so I'm, yeah. I, can't, I gotta steal away from your plug. But basically, <clears throat> Amazon's freaking everywhere. And when you're in a city like Washington D.C., I'm pretty sure they have like these lockers you can go to, like an Amazon drop-off. It's like for super fast delivery. You can literally order it and just go get it. Yeah. But I imagine the distribution center is outside of town on some level, maybe 10 miles outside of town. But a robot could pick up the package that you ordered have it to your locker in a half an hour hmm. and then you'd have access to it within that amount of time but it would only be at that particular locker only from that particular distribution only on a particular specific route that the robot does not divert from yeah and then i think i saw some concepts in, in a video or i can't remember where it was but it was almost like neighborhoods could have drop pods where the Amazon drone could take a package of a particular size mm -hmm. and it would get dropped in this like bin that only you had the code to get into the bin. Yeah. But it would be neighborhood by neighborhood. So it kind of spread out that spider web a little bit farther. But for the most part, I'm assuming the drones can only carry one package at a time. Yes. So they have to be mega efficient. Yeah. But it'd be better if they carried three or four. Yeah. I mean, but. When we're looking at, if you're talking total efficiency, sure. But when you're looking at what are the drones trying to accomplish and how are they trying to make Amazon's current business model more efficient, the most expensive and daunting task of package delivery is the last mile, right? So if they can automate as much as possible and take human out of the loop on the last mile part of the delivery, regardless if it's a single package being carried or three, it's still a cost advantage and efficiency advantage over how they're doing it today. You know what would be an amazing graphic? What? Is if there was a a video representation of what, if they took out the trucks of Amazon delivery and just made it drones, yeah. what it would actually look like from the distribution in the last, the last like three miles, let's say. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't be neat to like see 
what it would look like over a city, how many drones it would take for that many deliveries. Uh, well, I can give you an anecdotal number. Sure. When when we were sitting in doing some work uh, initially with Amazon, because I was part of some of those conversations, and nothing, none of this stuff is uh, hidden or proprietary because it's sure. also in public forum at some point. But, I mean, they were... Amazon was flat out telling us they were going to put 50,000 drones in the L.A. basin alone. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. That's like a swarm. It is. And, and you can go look at some of the patent filings that they've made in the last couple of years where they literally are throwing out these beehive ideas where you would have these drones in and out of beehives. Now, I don't know if that's how they're going with their concept. One could argue efficiencies and inefficiencies either way, but those are things they were putting out in the public space. Bro, how, how soon in the future is this? What, package delivery? No, I mean like swarms. Oh, swarms? Um, a couple years. <laughs> yeah, um, like three. Yeah, I mean there's still some there's still some things out there. Look, the, the one the one biggest challenge right now when you so if we if we we talked enough about people on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Now we gotta talk about other aircraft in the sky. That's the next major hurdle is how do unmanned aircraft and manned aircraft cooperate in the same airspace together. It's still a tough nut to crack that they're on a good path, but it's not there yet. So the drones would be low altitude almost entirely. Yeah. And then delivery to those dangerous airspaces just aren't going to be on the table. For not the for most... a while. Right. Yeah. Um, or you could have a, a flying drone, drop it to a ground drone, a robot on the ground. Yeah, you could do something like that. Um, all right, cool. So let's assume that this swarm are low-flying aircraft, and I've been looking forward to asking this question. Can people shoot down my drone? So what did I tell you earlier that the FAA considers these things to be? Aircraft. Aircraft. Can you shoot an aircraft no. in the sky? No, you don't shoot an aircraft. No, you don't. Right. Now, that's the black and white. Okay. Right. There have been some tests in some states. Uh, there's a, one famous case called the drone killer down in Kentucky where he did shoot one out of the sky, and the guy took him to court and said, you're violating federal law by shooting down an aircraft. And they're like, oh, it wasn't, and you were spying on me. So now this whole idea of privacy starts coming into it, and it turns into this big, long mess. Okay. And I'm not going to go into too much of a pontiff about this other than saying the better scenario versus shooting one out of the sky is to call the local authorities and let them know. Because, and as, as annoying as it may be to have that, and as, you know, whatever, not knowing the intention of the person on the other end of that drone, you can wrap yourself into so much legal trouble if you're not careful by blasting one out of the sky. Okay. That's because, and, and one, one test that has been proven time and time again is that the FAA by the powers given to it by the U.S. Code and Congress, they own the airspace from your shoelaces to infinity, okay, or the United States. That flat out. What you don't want to get yourself into is is a is a uh, a proposition where you're going to be fighting your or rather let me back up. That argument has been battled out in court a couple times already, where they say that states cannot preempt federal law. So states can't sit here and say one thing or another, like, oh, it's fine to shoot an airplane out of the sky, and the FAA comes back and goes, no, 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 you don't own the airspace, I do. And then you get into this little of entanglement. But point is, is you're dealing with the feds here. You don't really want to mess with that. Call the local authorities. Don't shoot the drones down. Yes. Okay. 
Now, there are some things in the works and developments that are occurring on the security side of the house that will help those things out to where law enforcement will be given better tools to identify who's operating that drone, who it's registered to, who it's tagged to, and they can go back and follow through because one of the bigger problems today is you can see a drone flying over your house, you have no clue who it belongs to. There's no way to identify it. They right. all look the same. They're all these white quadcopter looking things. Right. How do I tell that one from the next one or the next one? There's a technological solution that is in the works that will be coming out in the next couple of years to solve that problem. The problem is we've got to wait a couple of years to get there. Right, so that's it's similar to tracking the aircraft that are flying around the country. Yeah, it's called remote ID and tracking. Nice. That, that totally makes sense to me. Yeah. Speaking of which, I see drones flying through Harper's Ferry all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> is that just hobbyists doing that? I couldn't tell you. I mean, there was, and I, I cannot recall if it's still in effect, that's starting to get out of my scope a little bit um, or has been out of the FAA long enough that flights around national parks were prohibited. Really? Yeah. So, um, and there was, there was Department of Interior memos that were coming out about it where you couldn't, they're they all no drone zones and then there was a big... No you know, drone if, zones. If I'm on the other oh. side of the Potomac, I'm not technically on the national park grounds. Can I fly over the national park? And it's just all these, all this, it's, these are right. questions that the, the FAA never really had to deal with because because you wouldn't get things loitering over that low in that and for that long, so um, I, I can't speak super intelligently on that anymore. I, I would say one out of every four times I'm down cruising through Harpers Ferry, yeah, I would see a drone, yeah. just cruising through. Yeah. And one time I saw a formation of drones. <laughs> really, they were in like a V formation flying, and I was like, "This is," and they came through multiple laps really? through it, and that's they were the bigger ones, like the. Like the one that you showed me. Yeah. And um, they had the, the flashing lights on them. and Yeah. They weren't hiding from anybody, but it was neat to watch it. Yeah. But I was wondering, where'd they come from? Yeah. So let's touch on that for a second before I go to my next segue. But what are the range of these average drones? Well, the ones you're going to buy at a store uh, are probably going to be controlled via Wi-Fi, open, uh, unprotected spectrum. So was that two point something uh, megahertz or gigahertz, whatever. Okay. Um so it's limited to that range, which is about two kilometers. Um, that's more of the stuff that you're buying on the consumer level. Okay, if we're talking some of the higher end things, they got a whole bunch of different types of radios in there that are either on unprotected or protected spectrum, where they can go well, a lot further. Well, I think I think I'm misunderstanding something. Then, isn't there a way you can program a flight plan? Yeah, and they can I can send it like three mm -hmm. miles away. Yep. And yeah. then, but that's farther than two kilometers. Right, but, but what you're doing at that point is you're loading a flight plan, you're loading a set of instructions onto the drone locally, onto the vehicle inside its hardware itself. Right. And you're going, okay, execute. And that thing's going to fly one, two, three, four, five. Then that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay, so what kind of range are you looking at then? But let's, let's, let's use that outdated DGI that you and I worked with that one yeah. day. How far do those go? Uh, out and back safely, it probably could do... I'm just spitballing here. Probably five miles out, fly a small kind of pattern. Sure. Fly, fly back and still have a little bit of battery left. Okay. On, on a good weather day with light winds. Sure. You know, if there's heavy wind, then that's a whole other story. Gotcha. Okay. So I guess the next one I wanted to jump to, and this might these two might tie together, the last two categories I want to talk to when it comes to drones and business and contracting or whatever, mm -hmm. is industrial slash military or slash police. Mm -hmm. 
Is there an industrial use for drones also? Or are you just it's always just about the imaging and then the processing of the imaging? Um yeah, there totally is. Um if we look at you know, on, on most use cases they're gonna be around imaging. Okay. I'm thinking like pipelines. I guess you could yep. like image the condition of your pipeline or just yep. security. Yep. Again, still revolving around imagery, right? Right. Um, you know, BNSF, the big railroad down in uh, central U.S. and Texas, southwest U.S., whatever, you know, they have a, a platform that flies over the rails. And, again, it's all imaging, but it's, like, super smart imaging that can tell from uh, altitude and at a current speed that they're flying, conditions of their tracks, any problems that they're identifying, things they got to go fix, right? And they're doing that in real time. I mean, they're collecting terabytes upon terabytes of data, in a matter of minutes, that would take them years to collect traditionally. I mean, okay. it's, it's, it's the speed at which you gather the data and then what you can do with the data after, right? How you, how right. you process it and react to it. If we want to go maybe a, a step past imagery, you know, there's, uh, and with like search and rescue or with law enforcement, it's like search and rescue and life-saving efforts. You know, there's, there's use cases for uh, Loudoun County has a really fancy drone that has some sensors on it, not imaging, but sensors that can help track people that are uh, wandered away from their homes or their nursing homes or whatever. It's called sure, yeah. Project Lifesaver. So that's a really great one. Um, there's also use cases where in a disaster response, you can deliver small packages of life-saving equipment or materials uh, or in maybe some cases of very remote areas, uh, food and water if you can't get to it with a traditional vehicle quick enough. So there's, 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 drones are a tool. Right. It's a tool in your toolbox. And in this case, if you want to do a broader uh, uh, business, your industry is, say, commercial space exploration. Right. And you need to bring people back safely, and there's an incident, but you're doing it out in a remote part of the U.S. I don't know, somewhere in, say, southeastern New Mexico, just as an example. Sure. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you, you're responsible for 800 square miles of barren land that changes on a daily basis. The terrain changes. Part of your risk mitigation to get approvals to operate in that manner is to, say, build a drone solution in to deliver life-saving materials and, and equipment. Right. That it just It's a tool in your toolbox to build to the bigger story. I got you. Okay. So let's talk about military and uh, let's go police first, like police force. Yeah. Um, there's always this talk that there's police are buying up military equipment and, you know, whether it's tanks or armored personnel carriers. But now they're doing drones. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess drones for surveillance, dra- drones for imagery, like you said. Yeah. Um, but maybe even crowd control to some extent. Yeah. Break down some examples of that. Uh, really good one that we... Uh, spring break areas. There's a lot of, um, at least there were a couple of years ago, some fo- some law enforcement agencies that were using them to just to hover, to check the crowds, see where the crowds were, were congregating, where they weren't, kind of hot spots. Can you tell that they're police drones? No, because I think the ones they were using were high enough, far enough away. You know, they kind of did it in the background. You, you don't need, you could be a good standoff distance away to see the broader picture. So, yeah, no, you wouldn't see that. And you're out in the public, so you have no guarantee of privacy when you're in public spaces like this, right? Sure. So that's kind of the surveillance, sure, it's, but it's like 
it's in a way to make sure that they're deploying resources appropriately, right? If right. there's a big crowd over here, I want to put my resources there, not over on this barren beach. Right. Um, others would be search and rescue, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, some may be Overwatch um, for you know tactical operations, right? So if you you know everybody watches Bad Boys, right? And there's always some sort of aerial view, right? Well, it's a lot cheaper and it's easier to acquire and uh, you know a, a drone versus a helicopter. So if I could float uh, an unmanned aircraft to keep Overwatch on a tactical operation, it's cheaper and it's a lot quieter. So I'm not going to give my position or that you know I'm not going to kind of unveil that I'm coming to do this. In the law enforcement perspective, now there are arguments to be made, and we're not going to go into the sure. You know, no, I'm it, just curious about capabilities. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then of course in the military, they have little drones and gigantic drones and oh, yeah. jet drones. And as a matter of fact, I remember when I was in the military 20 years ago, uh, one of my neighbors at Fort Belvoir, he was in a program where they were able to fly. <coughs> I want to say it was either helicopters or jets mm. remotely mm-hmm. if the if the pilot was incapacitated. That was 20 years ago. I'm sure. Being able to link into aircraft to fly them remotely, mm-hmm. and that basically just turns it into a drone. Yep. Because it's just a remote, even though it's manned, it's, it's an incapacitated yeah. passenger at that point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they weaponized those drones. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there's not really much to talk about. We've all seen the commercials and the movies on what that looks like, and I imagine it's doubly more awesome with all the secret stuff they probably have <laughs> yes sir <laughs> yeah um let's see i'm trying to think of what else i wanted to ask because i've been shot down on my business ideas on trying to have a drone company <laughs> sorry man i know i get it um what have i missed well i think there's an opportunity in the state oh wait a minute, wait a minute. If, okay go yeah. ahead i'm sorry no no no. i, you, I thought you, i thought you. about what it was we didn't talk about the future. Yeah. Is that what you want to talk about? Let's talk about the future okay. and some of those fairy tales you told me when we were having beers years ago about yeah. what drones could really be used for right down to even an education level. Yeah. Come on, break it down. Uh, you know, we talked a couple of years ago about this idea of unmanned taxis, air taxis, mm-hmm. right? And, and the more formal term is unmanned, or excuse me, it's um, urban air mobility is kind of what the moniker is now. Where uh, Uber is dumping a ton of cash into a concept where, and you can go on YouTube and find the videos for this, their concept videos, where they'll buy up the top levels uh, parking structures, parking garages in an in a urban landscape, and they'll turn them into a drone vertiport. And a vertiport. Vertiport. That yes. is the term. That is there are there is literally standards work being done on. There's vertiport committees being stood up left and right. Okay. Just so happened to be on one. Um, the, but their concept is you know if you look in the, say the greater San Francisco area, and the nightmare traffic can be there, and if you were to take an Uber from one part of San Francisco to the next. It may take you an hour and a half, and your your Uber bill would be outrageous. Right. Or you can pop into a parking garage, go up to this vertiport, and take an Uber air taxi across town. And it would be about the similar cost of what, or cheaper than what taking the ride would be, but you would shave 90% of the commute time off. And your own personal quad cop. There'd be three the... or four other people on there with you. Oh, okay. Yeah, but you would just get into this, this contraption. It would take off shoot you to the next vertiport or the one closest to where you want to end up 
and then you would get out of the, the you know, go downstairs out of the bird port, and there would be a, a drone or excuse me, a Uber car waiting there for you to take you to the last bit of your your destination. That's that's a concept that is being worked and deployed, basically now. Right. Okay. Hold on. I'm piecing this together in my my simple brain. So we have airplanes. Yes. Coming in for landing and taking off and on on approach. Yeah. That's higher in the sky. Close to the ground. We've got approximately 50,000 package drones. Mm -hmm. Not even including what the mail, all these other companies are going to come up with, right? Mm -hmm. And then in the middle ground, slightly above the packages, there's going to be people helicopters. Mm -hmm. We're getting close to that whole image I see in science fiction with all these flying cars and stuff. Yeah. So it's kind of like flying cars. Yeah. Wouldn't a drone big enough to carry four people be very loud like a helicopter, though? Yeah. But in their specific concept, to mitigate the, the noise, is that it actually converts from a helicopter, so vertical takeoff, to horizontal flight. So that it can turn off some of those rotors and cut the noise down. Okay. That's fair. So it would have wings. Yeah. Um. I'm struggling with this a little bit because would it be, I mean, the small drones are electric. Mm -hmm. Would these be fuel? Oh, they're all over the place. There's Just, there's monster batteries. There's naturally aspirated engines like, you know, gas. You right. Know, um, you have jet turbine engines. And then there's even, we, we go a little bit further down and there's a concept uh, using hydrogen fuel cells. Okay. Yeah, we're getting too nerdy now. So... <laughs> We also talked about this being something that could be done for remote school buses. Yeah, this is the this is one of the just off the wall. Had a had a couple at a uh, couple too few at abolitionists and sure. start going down some rabbit holes. Yeah, uh, plug for you guys. I get a free beer next time I come in. Um, <laughs> the the idea though is you know one of the problems in the uh, especially central and, and main main kind of part, the meat part of West Virginia is the terrain and the challenges with busing in and out of. And this is one of the discussions. I think it came out of one of our sessions at an educational module in, in right. Jefferson. And the idea that just started kind of coming to me is like, why not? What if we did the same kind of level of concept, but instead of doing this in an urban setting, why can't you do it in a rural setting, right? Why, it, why couldn't we gain efficiencies in that manner to bus quote-unquote our kids from you know point a to school and then back and you know there's there's a ton of validity in that use case there still has a there's a lot that has to go right and it's going to be a lot longer before so that was just us drinking beers and spitballing yeah. i get it okay well I, I, that's always stuck in my head as yeah. what a really great viable idea if if we owned human drone helicopters mini helicopter planes yeah okay what have we missed, man? One of the things that we were talking about was, and you asked me about the state of the industry in the state. Right. And how there really isn't much. I think there's an opportunity here for a state who wants to focus energy and resources on economic development, job training, how do we bring high-tech jobs into the area. And I, I think one often overlooked Part of this is the unmanned industry. And the reason I'm somewhat passionate about it, especially in our state, is our proximity to the D.C. area. And there's 
I believe, opportunity to, to jump into this while it's still very early in the industry. And, and we're talking manufacturing, we're talking, um, you know, testing, uh, things of that nature. We're actually building and developing and R&Ding drones, not flying them. Flying them, I think, is going to take us only so far. But actually diving deep into the industry and attracting those manufacturers and companies who want to do these things uh, would be a great benefit. And I think there's a lot of potential in the state for that. Look at what Blue Ridge is doing with some of their uh, their mechatronics and robotics. You know, I was just at James Ramsey this morning talking to the robotics class. Um, there's, I believe, the skeleton is there to to build something. Uh, it's just going to take the right persons or entities to get these things pulled together. Um, and and it's sometimes. I'll, I'll admit more times than not, my my plead is often on deaf, de- deaf ears. Sure. But, you know, if we're trying to find ways to cross-train and, and move away from traditional industries that may have been in the state into new up-and-coming and emerging industries, why not go into the unmanned space, the drone space? I mean, or the autonomous space because autonomous I wonder cars. How you, I wonder how you would attract that. What would you have to change in, let's say, the Eastern Panhandle? You know, I I think it's just you got to change or put an intentional focus on reaching out to those companies and those groups to tell them that, hey, West Virginia's here. We have the basics or the bones of what could be a great infrastructure for this, you know, instead of going out and looking at Silicon Valley or looking in Texas or looking at anywhere else that these companies are looking to set up shop, come look at us. And look at what we can offer you. Two, two of the things that really stick out in my mind, and this is what we talked about a while ago too, where I wanted to do almost like a, a drone R&D airport here in the Panhandle, is, a, again, the proximity to D.C. You can bring the regulators and defense companies and all these important power players here to the area within an hour or an hour and a half. Sure. Probably. But also, you know, separate from Martinsburg Airport, if we look in Jefferson County alone, we got really clean airspace. There's not a lot of instructions. There's not any prohibitions or, or uh, restrictions that are going to sit there and make operating in this area difficult. It's really easy to do here, and I think it's an advantage that we could we could potentially exploit. Um, you know, Loudoun County was trying to do something the same thing over in Percival, but Dulles Airport Authority came and shot them down real quick. Too close, right? We don't have that problem, and. Uh, you know, that's something I, I would really like to see in the area, too. But, again, it's how do you attract the right companies and the right people here. Now, there is there is some movement on the on – the, and this is this gets into a bit of a controversial subject where the, the Department of Defense as well as the rest of the federal government want to domesticate the drone industrial base, okay? Most – of the retail and consumer, we will go even a level above that, prosumer type drones are built in China. There's a lot of niche, really great technology that's being built in Europe. The Department of Defense has classified the lack of an industrial base for manufacturing in drones as a huge risk for our, for our country. Yeah, that makes sense. So bringing manufacturing into the states and to build these technologies here with U.S chips and boards and motors and props and bodies and all that stuff, building them in the U.S. is going to be a very huge market opportunity for anybody out there. And they're, they're writing laws and they're coming up with grants and programs to support that today. 
there's a cash cow out there that we could take advantage of. It's just I don't think enough people in our state are talking about it. Right. Uh, I, I can see that. I can see that. You know, I I listened about how they uh, they don't allow certain cell phone companies to operate on U.S. networks. And there's some of those same methodologies and prohibitions are starting to trickle into the drone space. I, I agree. Yeah. Because of uh, the collection of data or maybe the where your drone's gone to or the images that it's captured. I can only imagine. Um, well, cool. Is there anything else we didn't talk about? You wanted to circle back on what I'm doing now? Yes, we did. Circle back to Robotic Sky. Yeah, because you got real deep before we broke down what, what <laughs> drones were. So, yeah, please do that. Um, so... Picking that back up, we are now building a network of repair stations. Globally. Globally. Wow. That can work on these aircraft in a way that is in line with current manned aviation standards. Okay. So the, Now, again, I'm thinking about the drones smaller than the size of this table. Oh, no. We're talking about bigger drones. Well, it's not fair to compare size when it okay. comes to drones. It's really the complexity and capabilities. Because, you know, there's there's a drone that's about the size of the one that I flew that cost $100,000, okay? That's not a throwaway item. You're going to want to repair that. You don't want to replace that. Okay? Gotcha. So, now, granted, I do have others that are very large, you know, uh, up to the size of what would be a traditional small single-engine airplane that you would climb in and fly across country in. Um, that being said, when we get into these more advanced operations, delivering packages, flying over people, hell, flying with people in the the vehicle, they are getting to a point where they're going to be certificated the same as any other manned aircraft that's out there. And when we start to get to that level, maintenance is a key piece. Maintenance and continued airworthiness is really the biggest term in the aviation speak. So what we've done is we've built this network around existing manned aviation stations that fix airplanes today. And we're taking them to that next level where they can work on drones. They already have the basic knowledge and skills. We're just cross-training them on how to do this. And we start, and then what we do is we create the network to plug everybody together so that it's a turnkey operation for everybody involved. The operator, so if you, the purchaser who's operating the drone, can get your vehicle worked on relatively quickly, we plug in the service centers and make sure that they are trained and they have the appropriate technical data and skills. And then the OEMs, we help them develop the maintenance programs that they need. And, um, you know, one of the traditional maintenance models right now is if you, say, bought one of these very complicated and complex drones, you would ship it back to the manufacturer. Right. Well, in some cases, it may be in Amsterdam. Good luck getting that thing back in, in less than three months. Right. Whereas my network, you can take it down the road probably within an hour to somebody who is trained and ready to work on that drone and have that thing turn around in about four or five days. And the majority of drones have the similar working mechanisms or yeah, the ability to replace a motor or repair one. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. So wow. that, that's what we're building now and or what we've been building over the last year. And, and um, as I mentioned earlier, we had the big press release that came out on Tuesday that we're working on the uh, Matternet M2s, which UPS is using in, in their package delivery operations. And there's been a bunch of other press releases have come out and manufacturers that we're working with and we're 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 the only ones talking maintenance and it puts us in a pretty nice position exactly as far as the startup goes so um it's it's been fun it's exciting and i was working till 11 o'clock last night and that's how it's been for about last year well that's great man you, yeah. you clearly have a, a passion for it 
Yeah. You know it. You know all this stuff. That's 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 really great. Um, I guess we're wrapping up. I think we covered most of the 101 on drones. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Andrew, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right. This podcast is brought to you by City National Bank in Ransom, West Virginia. I am Melissa Knott and manage both of our Jefferson County locations. Our Charlestown location is located on George Street in Charlestown, and the Ransom location is located in the Potomac Marketplace Shopping Center. City National Bank is a full-service community bank that provides an array of financial services. We offer a range of free checking accounts and savings products for both consumer and business customers. City National Bank offers competitive low-rate and low-cost lending products for both business and personal needs. Come and talk to me or one of my team members and get products and services that are tailored to fit your schedule and help you to achieve your financial goals. I can be reached at both the Ranson and Charlestown locations. Check out our website at www.bankatcity.com. Today's intro and background music is from the album Peter Clark After Dark. The performer, Peter Clark, told me that this melody popped into his head while he was resetting the fuses in the basement. Peter is not an electrician, but he is comfortable doing work on small projects around the house. The name of the song is I Floated Past the Breakers. Search for him on SoundCloud. Peter Clark, After Dark.